The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! We're back for another episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Site, a movie podcast, and I'm your host, Lee Russell. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Daniel Harper and Paul Romali. Daniel, how are you doing, sir? I am making it. You're making it, yeah? Yeah. All right. Ready to talk about some Italian horror. Sorry yeah. I couldn't be here last week. I was really busy, but, you know. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Are you drinking anything tonight? I'm drinking okay. water, because with the day I've had, if I start drinking, I'm not going to stop. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Paul, how are you doing, sir? I'm still breathing. That's about it. Awesome. And I know you're not drinking, because uh, you're at work. I, I'm, I'm drinking tea. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Going crazy tonight. Yeah. And I'm uh, drinking a nice little uh, Cascadian dark ale from a local brewery here in Nova Scotia, and uh, I'm feeling pretty good. And we're going to be talking some Italian horror tonight. We're going to be talking about some Mario Bava films. But before we get into that, do you have some housekeeping to do? Where's Greg's comment for this? Yeah, movie? exactly. That's what I'm looking for right now. <laughs> Why isn't he just on this podcast? He should really just be here. Like, you know, we have a little Greg segment at the beginning. And then Greg says what he thought about last week's episode. Words with Greg. God damn it, where is this You'd be like Andy Rooney of this podcast. You know, you just cut to Andy Rooney at the end, you know, and this is what Greg said. <laughs> All right, so here we go. He, he, left, uh, he left us two comments. He did one for, let's see here, he, he did one for our Halloween, our little Halloween bonus episode, and he also did one for the uh, Giallo episode we did with Dario Argento. Uh, so we'll go to the Argento stuff first. He said, uh, he's a Giallo noob. In fact, uh, these are the first two I've ever seen, although one could perhaps argue that some early slashers, such as Friday the 13th, share a lot of similar plot aspects. So that being said, I don't have a whole lot to add to this conversation, but as usual, here's a few of my ramblings. I thought Deep Raid was okay, but I really enjoyed Tenenbrae. The plot was tighter and hooked me a lot more, whereas Deep Red kind of went on too long. Granted, I did watch the two-hour long version, yeah. So, yeah, that one kind of drags a little bit. He said the music from Goblin was noticeable in both of them, and I liked how it seems to give these movies a certain Argento signature. As for the nudity report, and this is something I missed in the last episode that he berated me for, <laughs> I, I sort of cut off his comment there. Um, he said, as for the nudity report, I think Dave Red was the first Italian horror-ish movie I've seen without at least some skin. Tenebrae well, that's a different story. Quite enjoyed the lady in the towel, although it's a shame she had one of those magical towels that seemed to stay on her as she's being chased and killed. <laughs> uh, as far as the uh, Halloween episode goes, uh, he said that's probably his favorite episode yet, but I'm a list guy, so I love lists, damn it. And he says, here is my list. However, since you guys are jerks, uh, I'm sorry, I mean very thorough... Most of my list is just rehashing what you've already said. I have written down all the movies you guys listed that I haven't seen and will be further refining this list for next year. He says his picks in no particular order. Uh, the first four Halloween films. He said that the, the last good one was part four. And he says uh, he, li he likes Halloween from 2007, the Rob Zombie one. He says it's not a good movie, but I also think it's fun. 
and not as bad as some of the people think as long as it's taken on its own and not compared to the 1978 masterpiece. Uh, he likes uh, the Trick or Treat from 2006, 2007, depending on what date you go with. He likes the Return of the Living Dead, An American Werewolf in London, Ooh. The ha- the Halloween. Uh, so, hey, he's scoring some points here for you, uh, Paul. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he says, The Simpsons Treehouse of Terror. I'll hey. typically marathon them all once a year. Huge shock how much pop culture has changed in the last 27 years. He says, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Burning, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Friday the 13th entire series. I usually pick a few to watch every year, although it's not uncommon for me to watch all 12 of them over a weekend. This is my favorite slasher series, as even the bad ones are fun to watch. Uh, he also lists Madman. Stage Fright from 1987, Night of the Living Dead from 1968, so the original, when we have Halloween parties, I usually run this one on a loop the whole night, it adds a ton of atmosphere. He actually also lists the remake of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Cemetery Man, Mm -hmm. Dead Alive, Reanimator, Zombie, The Thing, The Lost Boys, Night of the Creeps, the Exorcist, that's one I disagree with, I'm not a big fan of that film, Mm -hmm. The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, the Shining, that's a good pick. Uh, Blair Witch Project, also a good pick. Creep Show 1 and 2. Hills Have Eyes, original and or remake. Both are awesome, he says. And he also enjoys watching It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, around this time of year. Right on. Thank you very much, uh, Greg, for the comments. I don't know if anyone has anything to add to anything you said, but... Uh, no, all that amount of movies would probably take up October. The whole... Yeah, so. definitely. <laughs> It's Treehouse of Horror, though, not Treehouse of Terror. I just want to, uh, you know, throw that in there. Greg, you're stupid. Yeah, Greg, you're wrong and you're dumb. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, And as Daniel sang it, I'm just saying it through Daniel. Um, um, (laughs) Yeah, so if we have anything that we've uh, watched or purchased in the last week or so, uh, you guys can bring it up. I don't know if you have anything, Daniel, but... uh, uh, no, I haven't uh, really watched anything. I've been uh, kind of away from the uh, visual media the last couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, yeah. pardon me. And apparently sleepy. It's a thing, you know. Cool. <laughs> uh, what about you, Paul? Anything? Uh, still on a wings kick. On a wings kick still? You're still, still. just going through the seasons, are you? Or? Yeah, I'm going back through the seasons again just to make sure I didn't miss anything. Nice. All right. Uh, I you do really have just looking at Helen Chapel's ass the whole time. Yes, I, I actually am. And until Casey gets there, and then I'm staring at Casey both. So. <laughs> I'll just say this: I'm not a big fan of wings, so I think it's appropriate that you uh, mention it, considering I, I think that that series is horror. So uh, there you go. A couple things I got as uh, as purchases, and this is a movie I think we might actually end up doing this month: uh, Contamination, which is a nice little Italian sort of sci-fi horror. Or a rip-off of Alien, really gory. Focuses on some uh, really nice special effects. I got uh, Lady Snowblood, which, if you're a fan of Kill Bill, Kill Bill basically owes most of its existence to this movie. Uh, the character of Rino Ishii is uh, basically Lady Snowblood. Uh, a lot of the scenes with her segments are basically lifted directly from Lady Snowblood. So that's, that's an excellent film. And I got Beowulf and Grindel. Animated one or the other one? 
Oh, so now you see the other one, not the not the animated one. Uh, the animated one sucks, but where the where the Danes get all drunk. Yeah, th- this one's really good. It's sort of like I don't know if any of you guys have seen the Thirteenth Warrior. Yep. Which also sort of loosely bases around the Beowulf and Grendel. But this one sort of uh, posits that like Grendel and Grendel's father and all of them are like maybe technically kind of like a Neanderthal offshoot of some sort, and they're you know they're just considered trolls or whatever mm-hmm. by by the Viking. And but there is. Uh, uh, there is some mysticism in there too, so there it's is. There, 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 there are monsters in it as well, and it's very, very creepily done and very effective, very moody film, and I really do love it. I think actually that's probably my favorite adaptation of the sort. And uh, of- Lee's gonna have a crush on the mystic lady because she's a redhead. Sarah Polly. Yeah. Yeah, as a redhead. God, I figured that one out already. Although she has, uh, although she has no accent at all, <laughs> no, <like>, no. <laughs> she, she stands out in the movie as being the only sort of Danish person in the movie who has no fucking accent at all, except for like a Canadian one, basically. Exactly. So. <laughs> He didn't even try on that one. Everyone else just tries to do drunken Scottish, which I think is very entertaining. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, no one was alive during those times that's still alive now, so you can't really say what the fucking accents were, but, you know, they, they tried their best, and it works really well. It's really effective, so. Oh, I actually do have a, a brief something I'll, I'll mention, just uh, mm-hmm. I, which all of my wife did. She was having a bad day, and when she has a bad day, she goes for comfort viewing, and that's usually something from the Jim Henson Studios. Uh, so you're talking like Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal or you know something like that. She's mm-hmm. watched Labyrinth like 85 times in front of me <laughs> when she's like, I'm having a bad day, I'm just going to put on Labyrinth. I'm like, fine. And I've listened to Dance Magic Dance like so many times. <laughs> um, and, and watched David Bowie's crotch. It's amazing. Oh, man, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, it turns out that uh, recently on Netflix, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, is on Netflix now. Oh, really? So you, so you can go watch that. And it was, I kind of glanced at it. I mean, I've seen that movie, but it's been so long. And just kind of looking at it and going, this is what big budget filmmaking looked like in 1992. I mean, it's it's a very, um, kind of lets you know how far we've come or fallen or risen. I don't know. It's sort of a weird moment of watching that being like, this was like blockbuster entertainment. Like, this was, was considered, like, looking amazing in 1992. Yeah. And now you look at it and it's like, man, like you know, a crappy TV show looks looks like this nowadays. And like Kevin Costner, I mean, he's not a bad actor at all, but he doesn't even try to do an English accent. And no. Morgan Freeman is kind of a racist Arab uh, stereotype, yeah. um, <laughs> which is horrifying on multiple levels. So, and then I kind of, I kind of, you know, I kind of went away and had to make some food and stuff. And so I didn't watch very much of it, but I watched enough to go, wow, I'm probably shouldn't sit down and watch this anytime Damn soon. English oak. Yeah, That's I mean I don't remember from it. I mean Morgan Freeman he just sort of plays like instead of like the magic negro he plays the magic muslim essentially in that film. Right, yeah. <laughs> and he keeps calling uh, he keeps calling uh, uh Kevin Costner Christian. Oh Christian. Yeah. Here, you know, wise old man and then Christian Slater shows up and it's it's just <laughs> it's I'd rather just watch the Mel Brooks version. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, no, and it yeah. is like, man, Men in Tights was so ripped off of this one. Um, also on Netflix, uh, because apparently right after you finish Prince of Thieves, uh, it just automatically starts playing, is the Disney Robin Hood version with the Robin Hood as the fox. And mm-hmm. I watched that one a bunch as a kid, and it, that, it holds up if you're if you're sitting and you're just kind of watching and going like, oh, yeah, this is, wow, a piece of my childhood sitting right here. So, That's far, it is far more enjoyable than fucking the Kevin Costner one, and I don't know if any of you guys have seen the fucking incredibly depressing one from, uh, what's his the face? The Scott one? 
the Ridley Scott one. God damn, that is a depressing fucking movie. Yeah, no, I haven't seen it, but they they, they ruined the whole premise of that because it was supposed to be the Sheriff of Nottingham. It was supposed to be his story, and then they just completely dropped that element, which was the only interesting thing that you could ever say about doing another Robin Hood version. So yeah. you know, the one I like is the uh, it's the one that it was from the seventies with uh, Sean Connery, where it's like an old Robin Hood returning to England and rekindles his like relationship with Marion, who's become like a nun, and it's just like a bunch of old guys who have passed their fucking prime, trying to uh, work out their past grievances and shit. Like the sheriff of Nottingham still there and all that shit. And it's like. I think it's uh, Robin and Marion or something like that it's called. I can't remember at the moment. but uh, I haven't seen that one. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting. I, I liked I've it wa- a lot. I've watched The Erotic Adventures of Robin Hood. I have watched that. Oh, really? A lot, of, nice. a lot of spanking and tits out and then people trying not to be homosexual. It's really kind of funny. <laughs> Is that something you have to try not to do? Like, you have to, like, no, 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 I was going to be gay, and then, no, no, no. Well, obviously they're playing on the fact that they're all... The, the band of merry men, but then at the same time they're like, well, this isn't a porn film, so we can't actually just have them get on it. But at the same time, it was from like the, the early '70s, so they're like, well, let's just pretend, make make nuances. Don't just go like, hey, let's go in the back and bang, sticks out, sword fight. So, but it was pretty <laughs> fun. Oh wait, uh, fucking Flesh Gordon had that same element in it. Flesh yeah. Gordon, like there, there's a part where Flesh Gordon goes to the the planet or whatever the, of the bad guy, and there's this like rebel group, and they're they're sort of like based off Robin Hood's group, and they're all a bunch of they're all a bunch of like obvious flaming homosexuals in in the movie. Pretty entertaining. Flesh Gordon's good time. Flesh Gordon's awesome. Actually, that's something we should cover at some point. <laughs> Flash Gordon then Flesh Gordon. I agree. Yes, well, I agree. Flesh Gordon. <laughs> And Caligula. We should definitely do Caligula. Caligula, holy shit. (laughs) For the glory of Rome! That's one of those movies you've watched too many times and you lose respect for all the actors in it and you never want to see them in anything else again. (laughs) Loop up that ring, baby. All right, so we're going to get into our next part of our Italian horror series, and we're going to be doing Mario Bava this week. Born in 1914, died in 1980. He was director, a screenwriter, special effects artist, and a cinematographer, and he's sort of from the golden age of Italian horror cinema. His work sort of uh, is best known for kickstarting giallo film genre and sort of the modern slashers. Uh, He started out as a cinematographer. He completed filming I, Vampiri, for director Riccardo Frida in 1956, which is kind of credited as the first Italian horror film. He, he himself directed about 30-plus films, and uh, he has several other credits, of course. He co-directed The Day the Sky Exploded in 1958, which is also credited as the first Italian science fiction film. Uh, in 60, he directed the, the gothic horror Black Sunday, which is sort of like the first undisputed classic that he did that everyone recognizes. Uh, yeah, and it's the one that sort of made Barbara Steele uh, genre star of the period. And yeah, Barbara Steele's sexy as fuck. Oh, uh, yeah. Basically, everyone who looks back at Bava, they say he's like very influential. A lot of his stuff is just sort of kickstarted genres that we know and love today. Uh, although Dario Gento sort of set down the groundwork for what everyone thinks of giallo films. Bava was basically the first one to do them. He did films like The Girl Who Knew Too Much from 63, Blood and Black Lace from 64. His sci-fi film from 65, Planet of the Vampires, is uh, thematically kind of a precursor to Alien and has a lot of influence on that film. Many elements from his uh, 1966 film Kill Baby Kill, regarded by Martin Scorsese as Bava's masterpiece, is featured a lot of the things in that are sort of featured in sort of like what's been known as J-Horror 
horror in the last few years, like a lot of influences from that in the Japanese horror sort of genre. And Twitch of the Death Nerve, which we are going to be uh, covering tonight, also known as Bay of Blood, is considered one of the earliest slasher films. We'll get more into what influences that had. And he's also the father of Lumberto Bava, who went on to have a respectable horror career as well in Italian cinema. I wonder how he got that job. (laughs) Okay, so uh, the first one we're going to be doing here is Black Sabbath. Roll the trailer! Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women. Even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a Vordalac. Black Sabbath, as ancient a superstition, as modern as the telephone. How nice you look with that towel around you. You always did have a beautiful body. Black Sabbath, the bare truth about the unbelievable, such as the brilliant beauty of a priceless jewel that holds within the body of a buzzing fly, a vengeful woman's murderous spirit. Only on the seventh night of the seventh full moon can the living see the lifeless undead. I am hungry. Is he man? Or vampire? An adventure into black magic that goes beyond the boundaries of the supernatural. Man's devoted love is welcomed by a woman's deadly lust for his blood. Uh, from 1963, Italian-French co-production, of course, directed by Bava. A uh, lot of writers on this one. Uh, interesting sort of thing is didn't credit the sources. They kind of ripped some of their stories from. They sort of credited themselves here and there. Uh, it wasn't until later that some of the sources came out. But uh, Bava's credit as a writer. Alberto Bivello. Jesus Christ, that name is totally impossible to pronounce. He's also a writer. Just look it on IDB, IMDB, you'll see the names. The story, The Drop of Water, in this one is credited to Chekhov. Marcio Fondado is credited with some of the screenplay. The story, The Telephone, is credited to F.G. Snyder. And Tolstoy is credited for the... How do you pronounce that vampire's name? Uh, Vorkodalak, or Vordalak. Vordalak, yeah. So there you go. This film stars Boris Karloff, Mark Damon... Michelle Mercier, Susan Anderson, Lydia Alfonsi, 
Glocko Oronato and Jacqueline Peru. And yeah, uh, this is an anthology horror film hosted by Boris Karloff in several segments, sort of the wraparound segments for the film. He also stars in one of the actual stories, and it consists of three different stories. Depending on what version of this film you watch, uh, the stories are done in different order. Uh, if you're watching the Italian version, uh, I believe it starts with... The telephone, mm-hmm. then it go, and it goes on to a, a drop of water, and then the Vortilac. And if you're, I think if you're watching the uh, U.S. version, it starts with a drop of water, telephone, and then Vortilac. I'm, I think I got that correct. I'm not sure, but uh, all it's three stories. That or the other. <laughs> yeah, one or the other. The uh, telephone one involves a uh, prison prostitute who gets starts getting. Uh, obscene phone calls, scary phone calls from a mysterious uh, person. The drop of water involves a nurse was taking care of a ill elderly um, mystic who, who ends up dying and she steals her ring and starts being uh, haunted by weird events once she gets the ring back to her own apartment. And the Vortilac involves a young noble who uh, runs into a family that is cursed by a certain specific type of vampire that preys on its former uh, family and loved ones. Mm-hmm. And I will go to you first, Daniel, your just sort of overall general thoughts of this film. I kind of like anthology films. I kind of have a weakness for them, um, mostly because particularly when you're talking about genre you really do kind of have to get in, get out, solve your problems, and, and do everything. A lot of the slasher films, I'm like, if this would have worked better as a 30-minute short, and so you kind of get that here. The version I saw had the the nurse, then the telephone, then the vampire, which I think is a good order, personally. Um, I do think that that's the order in which I found my most interest. I was most interested in the vampire story. Although I think I linked the telephone the best, although for, for my own reasons, which I think I'll get into um, when we get into it. I found the drop of water to be just kind of old lady wandering around and being scared by things. I, I couldn't really get into that one. But yeah, and uh, man, are there a bunch of fucking characters in that vampire story. Like I, yeah. I kind of lost track of who was who at a certain point. It's just like, just start killing people already. Let's just let's just move <laughs> on, you know. Um, but uh, it's an enjoyable watch. I think it would have been more fun to see theatrically with a crowd and to see the the Karloff segments. And you know, it's kind of it, we lose a lot. I think with some of these films, seeing them in, um, you know, just putting it on your computer or whatever, not really getting the full experience that the original yeah. audience would have. Um, and I think this one definitely suffers from kind of you know the the YouTube syndrome where you're just kind of watching it and there's other stuff going on and you're not forced to pay attention to it. But yeah. Right on, uh, Paul. What are your sort of initial thoughts on this one? Well, it's a it's an okay film. I like it's an okay anthology film. It's probably not one of the better ones for me. From what I do, I do like it. I got ripped off because there's two different versions of the telephone. Uh, there's a more um, conservative cut of the telephone for American audiences where they take out certain aspects that they f- deemed, you know, seedy and unwarranted for the American populace, populace at the time. The telephone has a uh, revenge kind of motif to it. Um, unfortunately... On the American audience, they took the pimp out and made him a ghost, and then they took the um, any uh, signs of prostitution and lesbianism out of the storyline. So you get this weird ghostly kind of, you know, she's talking to a ghost on the phone that's looking at her, and he's, it just didn't work right for me. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, at the end, he stabs, you know, stab a ghost? What's going on? You know stab ghosts. But uh, other than that, uh, she's smoking hot. I just want to say that. Uh, <laughs> and it, 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 
that's the problem. The weakest story is the one they screwed with for me. So I really can't give you a true sense of that because I don't know what else they cut out, and I really want to watch the actual Italian version of it. The Wardle Lock seems to me that the nuances, the vibes and stuff, it has like an amicus vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Not like the full the full on hammer, but more of a lower key amicus vibe that I like. Boris Karloff is good in it. I mean, I think it would have worked just as well with a different actor, but having Karloff in it, he's also the narrator of the trilogy too. So, I mean, it was really cool to see him there. The Wardle Lock, uh, it's a play on uh, the Valkolde Lock which is a, uh, Sl- a Slavic Hungarian vampire. So uh, I've heard of the Vordalak before I actually watched this film. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting. I do like the, the twist where it kills the, they, they go after the family members. I think um, Karloff, I've seen him in all kinds of guises, but he does play a really cool, creepy, old, decrepit vampire in this. I did like that. Overall, I don't have a lot of memories from this because, like I said, I'm a lazy podcaster. But overall, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was a little bit easy to understand. In a, in, not in a bad way, but like I could kind of already figure the ending out before the ending got there. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, it's just going to travel through the family, and, and then obviously the, no one's going to survive at the end because that's how legends continue. You get all of them, and then they just keep going on. So, but other than that, it was pretty cut and dry, pretty basic. Um, the drop of water for me was the nicest one because it had the coolest vibe when I was doing it. It's a classic ghost story of, you know, cursed souls and stealing and, and um, those those kind of vibes. I think this, the face of the, of the old lady is really creepy. Yeah. I like the new nuances. I like how she floats around. and I, It is a person, like Daniel said, it is correct. It's a person scaring herself more so, so it's more nuancy. but I like the, the amount of, of light that is, is, is bereft in the film. I like that. I like the shadows and, and just the creepy aspects, like when the hand comes and grabs her on the side and she's scared, you know what I mean? Things like that. Yeah. I like the more let your mind fill in all the blanks filming. Overall, I like all three. Obviously not the telephone. I like that the least, even though it has the most visually pleasing females. Uh, I would like to see the full version. I don't know if they cut anything else out of the Vortilock or the Drop of Water. Yeah, they I... um, for for the Vortilock, they actually did cut like some gore for the American audience. Like okay. it, was, it was a bit more violent in the Italian version. Um, so unfor- unfortunately, to tell you that the one that I saw was a little bit more of the tamed version and the just augmented version, and they didn't augment it for its own good, unfortunately. So I'd probably give it like out of anthology films, I'd give it like a six point five seven out of ten for me mm-hmm. overall. But like I said, I didn't watch the correct version, so I need to track this thing down and give it a good go with the proper version. Yeah, all right. I do like this film quite a bit. Uh, I am a big fan of anthology horror films. I mean, at some point we're going to do a sort of series on them uh, when, once I pick some select ones to do because there's a fucking buttload. Like, I thought there was not that many and then I started researching it a bit deeper and I was like, oh yeah, there's like a couple hundred out there at least, <laughs> at the very least. Uh, I think my favorite segment is, like you said, Drop of Water. I will agree with Daniel, it's a very standard story. Like, it's ver- it's very much the most standard kind of horror story in this film that you just see everywhere, but I liked the sort of different things that kept popping up, and I liked the the sort of uh, motifs of the fly, the drop of water, the cat, the lights failing. I liked how they kept bringing it up over and over again, and I like how they made it sort of ambiguous as to whether this woman was actually seeing a ghost or if she was just going crazy from her own guilt for a while. I mean, at the end, it's pretty much apparent that 
probably there was a ghost, but I just I just like the sort of tension that was built in it. I, I felt it was really, really effectively done. And also, of course, the creepy old lady mask is just creepy as fuck. Like, it, it's, it, it looks real, and it looks unreal at the same time, and it just works really well, I think, very unnerving. Vortilak is really good. Karloff really just sort of carries that himself. Uh, he does a really good job with it. Uh, I, I still agree with you, Paul. I think basically any sort of, like, veteran horror actor probably could have pulled it off, but Karloff does a really great job with it. It's a lot of fun. Daniel's correct. There's way too many characters in that segment for a segment that short. I mean, if you were going to expand it into a feature film, then maybe you could have that many characters well, going you on. Can, you could totally tell it's uh, based on a Russian writer, because Russian writers, you know, I don't know if you've <laughs> ever read like the Brothers Karamazov of Crime and Punishment, but, uh, you know, those things are... I mean, they just have, like, 30 characters just wandering in, and like, oh, and this is this dude's uncle, and this dude's uncle, <laughs> you know, is a lawyer, and he's going to get him a job at the law firm, and then, like, so-and-so is there, and it's just sort of like this cultural thing where they're just used to having, like, a billion, like, family members and shit. And so, you know, uh, a modern-day, you know, like, adaptation would, like, pare that down a bit, but, uh, you know, it, it felt very Russian to me. I mean, it was, like, ridiculously Russian. Yeah. I did like the scenery helped a lot with that film. I mean, there was yeah. a lot of gothicness to it, and Baba does gothic horror very well. I did like the, like, the crypts, graveyard scenes, and just stuff like that. I mean, I like the visual aspects of it. I think Boris Karloff just has a nuance to him that I really do enjoy. You could have picked a couple different people to play the role, it, I think Korolov was is the selling point for the for the for the, for that film. So it's pretty good. Unfortunately, I'm just I'm so drawn on this film. I'm so annoyed that I couldn't get the right version. That's I, I guess I'm sullen. So yeah. sorry about that. And this was in in uh, the thing about uh, Karloff being in this film, it was more just because he was sort of uh, uh, contracted to American International Pictures at the point. Uh, AIP essentially co-produced this with an Italian uh, group, who were, and AIP were just basically looking to look for like commercially successful films that they could pro- co-produce and make some money from. Uh, right. After they saw the success of Hercules in 1958, they're like, "Hey, these Italian guys are making some low-budget movies. They're making a lot of money." So let's jump on this. And this film actually did make 103.5 million lira or whatever in in Italy. So it did very well. 35 bucks. Yeah, 35 bucks in America. But Karloff was early into production. He was not only the star, but he was decided to be, you know, in one of the tales, but to be the host. Partly because he was, this was just getting off his own anthology show he had on TV called Thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was sort of he's sort of perfect for the role. And like I said, he was under contract with American International. And, and they had this sort of policy at the time of, let's pair well-known, established, older horror actors with younger actors. And, mm-hmm. and that was sort of the formula they used for these films. Let's see here. I, I do have a thing here. The order of the segments uh, were rearranged by AAP for English language release. Uh, the original ordering was the telephone, the Vortilac, and the drop of water. Okay, so I got that wrong. Uh, in addition, the telephone was redubbed and slightly recut by Bava at AIP's request to create a supernatural angle and disguise the lesbian overtones of the story. A lot of people credit the telephone as the first sort of giallo to mm. some degree, and and you can you can sort of see that sort of those sort of elements if you watch the Italian version. It was actually also the first Italian thriller to be shot in color, 
And uh, this is actually the only film, apparently, that Boris Karloff plays a vampire in. I don't know if that's correct or not. I was going to, I was going to run that by you, Paul, because I know you would know. Better. I haven't seen Karloff as a vampire. I've seen him as everything else, but I think the only actor that actually has the claim of playing every type of monster is uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, I think so. There were additional scenes filmed with Karloff and introducing the segments. However, AIP decided they were unnecessary and cut them from the film. And Karloff would later say that mostly these introductions that were cut were some of the most fun he ever had on a film set. Uh, the, the movie got its title basically as sort of a homage to Black Sunday. They were sort of like trying to run off the popularity of uh, Black Sunday, which was a big hit for Bava back in the day. Bava's father, Eugenio Bava, who was a, sort of a sculptor and also did special effects in movies, he actually did the head of the uh, old lady. Uh, and, and also did the severed head for the Vodalac. The soundtrack, uh, Roberto Nicolzi's uh, soundtrack from the original film was replaced for the American uh, audience by uh, Les Baxter. I've, I've seen both versions now, and yeah, there, there are some criticisms of how inappropriate the sort of American soundtrack is compared to the... Uh, to the Italian one. The the American one, they basically overdid all the soundtrack. Like, you know, every time something was going to happen, you had this, like, really big, scary music. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think that's pretty much all. Also, this film was also known as The Three Faces of Fear in, in Italy. I have nothing really more to say about it. I, I like it a lot. I think it's a pretty good anthology. I think it's pretty solid. It's got three enjoyable stories. I don't think you're going to, especially if you get the Italian version, you're not going to hate anything in this one. I think it all works pretty well. And at the end, it has a little bit of fun, too. They sort of lightened it up a bit by, you know, having the camera pan away and showing Karloff on a fucking horse and people basically show he's on a soundstage and it's all fake or whatever. But, you yeah. know, it's just a fun little little yeah. joke at the end. Uh, Daniel, if you have any final thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, defend the telephone segment a little bit because I did like that one. Um, I, I really like, I mean, the version I saw, I guess, would have been the Italian version then. Um, I, I did uh, appreciate the uh, slightly more... Uh, or less supernatural elements of that one. Mm -hmm. I thought it worked well, sandwiched between these kind of heavily supernatural stories. I was kind of confused as to whether this guy was supposed to be a ghost or not, like, at the end, because they keep saying, you're dead, you're dead, but I kept kind of going, maybe he's not, maybe this is, I mean, but then he also has, like, this kind of, like, supernatural ability to see her and, you know, yeah. that sort of thing, and so, there, you know, it is it is kind of a cliche today that we kind of think of, but, you know, I, I definitely felt like it was uh, pretty effectively done. I mean, I, I've known um, women who have, who have had uh, you know, kind of ex-boyfriends or people from their lives. Um, Basically, you, know, you then. We're yeah. Calling. <laughs> <laughs> invade their invade their space that way, and I mean, it is it is this like legitimately terrifying thing. I mean, I was I was kind of watching that first like ten minutes of that sequence, and I'm like, this is basically any woman on the internet these days. You know, any woman date on a dating site is like, I want to know what you're wearing. You know, it was uh, it was very. Um, I thought I thought it was creepier. Maybe um, you know, I, I kind of identified with that element of it quite a bit. Um, and then when you uh, get into the uh, the ending of it, and you know, the the friend or the the lover or whatever is the one who um, actually gets killed, and she's punished because she's you know essentially sending the the other woman out to the psych evaluation and not believing her. I don't know. I thought there was some interesting thematic resonance. Yeah, I'd like to see the original cut version of it because I think I'd like it a lot more as well. Yeah, the yeah the the supernatural thing that they tried to pull with the American release just comes off kind of ham-fisted. It really does. Uh, but but yeah, the Italian version is much more subtle. There's a much more sort of interesting themes going on. The fact that it's sort of the lesbian lover, she she realizes, oh, this pimp or whatever escaped from prison, and she's trying to use that to basically shoehorn herself back into her ex-lover's life. 
essentially, you know, and try to rekindle the relationship. So right. it's a much more interesting story. So yeah, and of course, you know, just uh, visually, we're kind of—I mean, we're kind of given the um, the treat of the uh, of the beautiful lady, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we're admiring her curves, while at the same time, we're essentially being put in the place of the killer of the of the creepy guy, you know, outside. Which uh, the pairing—I mean, I keep kind of bringing this up because I find it always interesting—is the pairing of the violence or the uh, you know the the kind of uh, threat with uh, the sexuality in these films is, is mm-hmm. kind of always this fascinating and sometimes horrifying thing, and I think that here it's it's played with intelligently, and that it's it's actually kind of used to kind of put us, the audience, almost in the place of the um, of the killer, and um, I think it's it's kind of knowing what it's doing with that, but I. Uh, I don't know. In a lot of cases, it feels a little, a uh, little more creepy. Well, I think I, I, that in the next movie we're going to talk about. So, yeah. I think the, I think the AIP, uh, the people at AIP, they probably watch this film and they're like, that segment's too smart for the American audience compared to the <laughs> other two segments in the film. So we're just going to dumb it the fuck down and Ouch. make it all supernatural. I mean, that, that's essentially, I think, what the thought was yeah. because this isn't going to play in the drive-in. There's just too much. There's too much stuff going on here. Let's, let's get back to a ghost killing people or some shit. You know. Like, on now to, and depending on what title you want to go with, but A Bay of Blood from 1971, directed, directed by Bava, story by Franco Barberi, uh, Mario Bava did the screenplay, Jean Luto did the English uh, version dialogue, Filippo Otani did this, also did some of the screenplay, Dardano Serracetti did the story, and Giuseppe Zarcarello, Jesus Christ, I'm just butchering them all. 
uh, did the screenplay. Oh shit! I should have wrote. I should have uh, read his uh, English name, Joseph McLee. That's much easier. <laughs> he, he did Joseph. it under the name Joseph McLee. Yeah, there we go. This this is starring uh, Claudine Auger, Luigi Pastilli, who I actually know quite a bit from other Italian films. He did a lot of uh, giallo stuff, and he was also in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly as uh, Tuco's uh, brother, and he was also in For a Fistful of Dollars, I believe, Claudio Cosimo, Laura Betty, Leopoldo Tresti, Isa Miranda, Chris Evram, Anna Maria Rizzati, Bridget Skay, and uh, we'll leave it at that. This is another one that has a couple different cuts. It's not as badly cut cut as uh, some of Bava's stuff was uh, to come. This one has the sort of notoriety of probably having the most names attached to this film. Not only was it known as uh, A Bay of Blood, it was known as Carnage, Twisted the Death Nerve, Last House on the Left Part 2, mm. New House on the Left, Bloodbath, Bloodbath Bay of Blood, Bloodbath mm. Bay of Death, the Odor of Flesh, which was a pre-production title. Thus Do We Live to Be Evil, which was the shooting script title. Before the Fact, which was the initial after-production title. And The Ecology of a Crime and Chain Reaction. And I think there's still a couple others that I'm missing there, but <laughs> this is essentially a sort of proto-slasher murder mystery kind of thing to a certain degree. Yeah. It involves a wealthy countess who lives in this house on the titular bay that would eventually become the Bay of Blood. She is killed. Her killer, who is her husband, is killed right afterwards by an unknown assailant. And then we basically jump right into all sorts of people who are potential heirs to the fortune of this countess, trying to scheme their way into getting the money. Yeah, I'll sort of leave the plot at that. There, Well, I guess... You, you can shoehorn in, there's all these sort of dumb, horny teenagers show up early on in the film also. They came out of a different film. They were just shooting Having a Good Time and just yeah. ended up there, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah it but, definitely feels like a dead teenager movie in the middle of this, like, you know, yeah. high crimes and misdemeanors kind of thing. You know? We yeah. realized we actually didn't write enough plot, so let's put four horny teenagers in there and kill them for 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll go to you first, Paul, for your sort of initial reactions on this one. Oh, it's 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 an okay, it's an okay film. It's weird because it's, it's a giallo. It's in the, oh, obviously early. Early mm-hmm. giallo, early slasher, and a whodunit crime mystery at the same time. It's pretty interesting. There's no characters in this I gave a fuck about except the Viking. <laughs> as they call her the German and they call her the Viking. I've heard that. Yeah, I was, I was, I was going to bring her up as well, Broomhilda. I'm sure yeah. it's no surprise to either of you that she was my favorite character. But you She's know. definitely my favorite character. And well, <laughs> uh, Spoiler alert, Greg, there's only one person that gets naked, but at least it was her. Yeah. Whoever wrote Put Your Shirt Back On and Then Run should be fired. The <laughs> it was overall- a wetsuit, though. I mean, you know. Yeah. You, get, you get a nice lingering shot of that wetsuit. It's it's uh I can't complain and, and, too much. And, of it. and let's let's be let's be honest here. She didn't see the killer before then. She, it was after she put her shirt on that she saw the killer chasing her. So oh, Tenebrae would have just cut right through that shit. Boom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the film that I have, uh, not all the parts. I just want to say mm-hmm. some of the parts of the, the copy that I have are very dark, very dark. And I don't know if that's a standard for this film, but um, there's a later scene. I'll get to that. Um, explain it in a second where they have uh, a woman walking in the dark and literally I can't see anything. Now and again I'll see a little bit of faint tree line. And then finally when she gets up to a window I start to actually finally see her face. That's how oh, dark some of the film is. Well, you must have a really dark, bad, dubbed version from some yeah. VHS copy, because 
the one the one I watched online, I don't know about you, Daniel, but it was pretty clear. It was. I watched the version on uh, Amazon Prime has this, so I just watched it that way. If you're if you're an Amazon yeah. Prime member, you can watch it for free. The only thing I did like about it is gave me kind of a creepy vibe because you know you got you know there's people killing out there and you're walking them basically in the woods at night. It's like pretty. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I like that. The overall film is pretty interesting. It's definitely something that well, it's basically like a giant Nerf ball thrower red herring plot thing that they just keep throwing people at you. And there's a little bit of overacting in it where you're like, oh, this guy's got to be a killer. He's, he eats squids. Um, <laughs> like, like he'll, He kills octopus with his teeth. You couldn't use a knife, of course. You just got to bite yeah. the thing. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this. The one thing that I can say is I was going to get to is there's no characters you give a shit about. Except for Broomhilda. Except for Broomhilda. And... That's not because of the way she's written. No, no. I, just, I, just wanted to, I just wanted her to live because she was hot. That's all. Yeah, yeah, that's it. We didn't even care about the French girl. We just really didn't. She's no. uh, And uh, overall, the main, as we were just saying as a joke, that it, there's another film that just accidentally got cut into this film by mistake. It literally <laughs> seems that that strange that they just cut to a, a happy teenager movie for just a little bit and then they go back to the main plot and that's it really it was it's so weird after that you go right back to the people that you couldn't give a crap about this is a weird film to talk about because even after I watched it I still was like it doesn't do really too much for me I don't want to crap on the film but it still doesn't do that much to me the kills are very good. And actually, the funny thing about this film is the kills were so good. The guy was so good at, at doing stuff. He did a movie earlier. He had to kill a dog in the movie. What happened is he killed the dog in the film, and then the film showed, and he actually got sentenced to or got arrested for the film because he killed a dog in the film, and he actually had to go to court and prove that the dog was still alive. Well, that's just like, um, what was it, Cannibal Furox, where the director actually had to go to court and bring in witnesses and like bring in the people that he killed on film and prove that they were still alive? Yeah, or uh, like like uh, Necromantic. They actually seized all of his property and stuff because the film was too violent and realistic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. Overall, the kills are really cool. The plot twists are really interesting. You just, you never actually get that little bit of a chance to sink in and, and connect with some of the characters where you care about them. At first, you think there's going to be a prophecy kind of thing going on because they show the mystic and they get into the mystic aspect a little bit, but then you realize that she's just another twist of the plot that doesn't mean anything that gets killed. And when <laughs> she gets killed, she really gets killed. Mm-hmm. And I, My version has this plof kind of a sound when that happens yeah. that I find very amusing indeed. Overall, my film is a little bit dark, but the kills are extremely good. I do like the the fact that you're basically a ping pong ball in a in a giant murder machine. I think that's pretty interesting. Once the film starts moving, it starts moving, but it takes a little bit to start moving. I don't know if that's correct. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once it starts moving, you can stay into it a little bit more. I'm a little bit wordy. It's a little bit wordy my explanation because I really don't want to crap on the film. It's just not one of my favorites. Yeah. Uh, what was the uh, running time for the one you saw? Because there's two different versions. There's an 84 minute and a 76 minute version. I think it was 76. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's uh, overall a short film. The one that I had was pretty short. Oh, all right. Okay. Uh, Daniel, what are your sort of initial thoughts on this one? Uh, mine was 84 minutes long. I actually enjoyed this quite a bit. Um, I stopped trying to follow the plot fairly early on. Yeah. I, didn't care that I didn't care about any of the characters, honestly. Um, I didn't have some of the problems that Paul did with it. Um, I think partly because I just kind of accepted it as this, uh, you know, it, it would be really easy to kind of take this same script to just play the screwball comedy where people are killing each other. And, you know, like it's, it really is everybody's trying to kill everybody else. 
Um, and, uh, you know, it was just kind of... Like Clue. Like yeah, that's good I to mean, say. Did it like feel like Clue? <laughs> it it kind of has this, like, screwball comedy element to it. Um, and I think that that uh, works for me. I think that once... Like, very early on, one of the things I really admired about this film was the opening of the film. Partly because uh, I had just watched uh, the other one. One thing that that film lacks is, is momentum. And I think one thing that you get with um, anthology films sometimes is there's just this kind of... They don't really move, you know? Yeah, um, it's it's start, one, stop, start, stop. With the right. Um, yeah. And those films, I mean, the, uh, the the segments felt a little bit generic. They felt a little bit rote, um, possibly just due to the fact that we're watching it 60 years later almost. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the things I really appreciated about this one was the opening. Like, it kind of gets you started immediately. Like, I was enjoying the score. I kind of was sitting down. I'm getting used to the film. And then suddenly, boom, Lady in a Wheelchair is getting hung, you know? And then two minutes later, that dude is getting stabbed. And so then once I'm kind of down, okay, this is going to be people killing each other in, in kind of various innovative and creative ways. Um, I just kind of accepted that immediately. I think one thing that feeds into what Paul was talking about, about just not caring about anybody, is just that everybody kind of looks alike, and that's sort of an issue mm-hmm. with these kind of films, um, where you don't have like clear visual distinctive markers to kind of tell who's who all the time. And unless you're really paying attention, you're just kind of like, oh, it's that who, what guy is that again, exactly? I kind of have that issue. I, I like the fact that there's an entomologist. Um, you know, like uh, going around and collecting butterflies and beetles, and you know, I liked the gypsy lady. I liked the uh, the four teenagers. I, I I do think that like this movie is just smart enough that it should be smarter. Like the plot should actually be more clever. Like if you decide to bring four teenagers into this thing, you should at least have the plots intersect a bit better instead of just kind of plopping them down in the middle of the movie. I really liked the gore effects. I thought the gore effects were were particularly good. There's one kill with a blade through a guy's face that I thought was yeah. just uh, pretty astonishing. And the uh, the meat hook or the, the 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 hook through the girl's neck. Um, I thought that was. Uh really effective as well. Uh, I really admired some of the cinematography, particularly towards the end. There's a shot where uh, a guy's lighting matches, and it's only mm-hmm. lit by the match in, in his face, or at least apparently only lit by the match. Uh, and you get uh, some really nice stuff there. I did admire... Oh, you, you uh, mean the, the brightest match in the world? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the bright, those, those are those are white phosphorus matches. You see, But no, I was uh, I, like, I liked this film a lot. I mean, this this is uh, probably one of my favorite horror films that we watched during any of the slasher series or the Jallo so far. Um, I, I I enjoy it quite a bit. I I kind of just didn't care that I couldn't follow the plot. It was just sort of like, okay, this is this is what this film is. I think you could probably use some tightening up in certain sec- sequences. You know, there's a lot of kind of walking around and a lot of like people talking and you could probably trim it up a bit but um, I liked the personalities, I liked the, the scheming, I liked the plottiness of it and uh, I thought the kills were really effective and um, yeah I enjoyed it. Yeah, right on. I like this one quite a bit. This is also another case Paul where it comes down to what version you've watched. Apparently you watched a shorter version which cuts out a lot of good stuff. I think you might enjoy it a bit better if you actually saw the 84 minute version. I think there's probably two different films, like you said, Paul, basically shoehorned together in this one, it feels like. The stuff of the teenagers is very, very familiar, very proto kind of slasher. Like, you can see where a lot of 80s slashers sort of got a lot of their stuff from when you look at that sort of segment on its own, because that sort of happens like about 
I guess like what about half hour into the film they yeah. sort of, and then they're there for a little while and then they're quickly killed off like maybe 10-15 minutes later something like that that segment's interesting because those characters are actually likable like they're not dicks or anything like of course no. they, they, they did sort of break into the abandoned property on, on, on the bay or whatever but yeah. they're not bad people by any sort of real stretch of the imagination mm-hmm. whereas when you go to the more adult characters later on in the plot they're all fucking dicks like they they all deserve to die they all deserve to I, kill each other and die I, I don't mind a film where a bunch of rich people try to kill each other I, I, yeah. I find those films really um, we all deserve it me really uh, cheers at these movies like oh <laughs> it's a rich people trying to kill each other movie I'm down with that yeah, yeah. let's let's watch these let's watch these uh, rich assholes all die yes right, the funny thing is the the people in the film that have like the most character building and you know like a little backstory that you can actually start to get into they're all victims mm-hmm. they're all dead yeah. you know what I mean it's like and it's not like the killer victims they're they're all just simply victims yeah. they're there and this movie does start off like throwing red herrings out but like that quickly kind of falls away you're like like when you once you start realizing that oh there's multiple killers and everyone's killing everyone else like the red herring thing just kind of drops but mm-hmm. but right up to the point I think right up to the, it sort of ends right at the point where they kind of finger the entomologist because right after they kill the teenagers one of the kills and uh, we'll get into the kill later, but one of the kills with the, with the spear, then they go to a shot of the entomologist not being at home, and then there's like a bug pinned <laughs> with right, and you're right. like, oh, oh, I see what you're doing there. Uh, uh, creepy. The plot really doesn't matter. Like, the plot was uh, an afterthought. This film was devised uh, by Bava, so he could work with a friend of his that he worked with in a previous one. I didn't write their name down bad podcaster here doing research, but he, he wanted to do a film again with this person. He had no real script, but he did have this idea of let's concoct these 13 different murder set pieces and put them in a film, mm-hmm. and then let's write the script afterwards. So I think that's pretty much fucking apparent when you watch if you, uh, if you listen to a lot of uh, narrative and like backstories and stuff about Italian film directors, you'll hear the same one. They didn't really care about thought the plot too much. They wanted nuance yeah. and atmosphere. I mean, almost is that the cliche the thing to say when they're bad plot writers? Really but but the him. but but the funny thing is this isn't sort of typical of Bob. A lot of his films actually had pretty strong scripts in them. This was like mm-hmm. the, one of the rare exceptions. And funny enough, he's been on record saying this was his favorite film to do. This was his favorite what he accomplished, and it was actually probably his first real big critical failure as well to a certain degree. Uh, he put all these really great set pieces together. Uh, he hired on a specialist for the special effects because he wanted to make it all look really good. You you look at two kills uh, with the teenagers that were directly ripped for Friday the 13th Part 2. Yeah, I mean, and you can see it. I mean, as, yeah. you know, like the slasher genre would be very different if this film wasn't made. Yeah, one, one of the killers in this film uses what's called a bail hook. Uh, so it's sort of like a machete, but it's got that little curved tip on it or whatever. The one to the face, that's the wheelchair kill in Friday right. the 13th Part 2. Yeah. Uh, also, I'd say probably Tom Savini stole that for Dawn of the Dead as well because there's that machete to the face kill. Then there's the spearing of the two, of the couple in the bed, which is also directly lifted for Friday the 13th Part 2. All really impressively done. I, got, I, I just want to take a minute to talk about my least favorite character in this film and maybe one of my least favorite characters in film history because he's Bob, such a but Bob wasn't in this film. Bobby. There was a Bobby in this film. He had the same name. <laughs> oh, and, I know. 
Bobby, this poodle-headed motherfucker who did not jump on that redhead when he had the chance. She was throwing out signs from the beginning, and he did not take it. He was more interested in hanging out with the other guy and trying to get with his girl. Dude, you got this beautiful German redhead who's probably going to do some freaky fucking shit, and she wants to throw herself at you, and you're not throwing yourself at her? And plus, if you had decided to go with her and have sex with her in the bay, you probably never would have ran into that fucking body, which would have started all the shit for you guys. Because the only reason these teenagers are really killed is because Broomhelda ends up running into one of the hidden bodies when she's climbing right. up the pier or whatever. Mm -hmm. if, if, he had, if he had been with her, probably never would have happened, and they would have been safe, and that That's poodle-headed motherfucker would have probably been getting a lot of nice, redhead, kinky German sex, but no, he had to get a fucking veil hooked in the face, and I don't feel yeah. sorry for him and at he all. He deserved it. <laughs> fucking asshole, man. Yeah. God damn it. I was like, I, I was rooting for these people to survive, because they're the only likable people in the film, but fucking poodlehead there, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just, I have no sympathy for that shit. <laughs> Um, I agree. Okay, I'll go to you, Paul. First, uh, any sort of final thoughts on this film that you final want to thoughts? Throw I mean, I like. I overall, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good film. I'll definitely watch different versions. If I can get the other version, I'll definitely watch that. A brighter, longer version. Obviously, it's pretty interesting how they do do it because the red herrings for as many as they throw at you, they always seem to work well. Mister, I I don't know, you know, Casimir sweater that looks like it got rolled in mud for a while. I mean, the hard worker guy, I mean, that's pretty yeah. interesting. Uh, he's a definitely big old red herring in the film. Uh, the entomologist does get thrown in there, even though, like, he and his wife are completely innocent the whole time, or just victims. Mm -hmm. um, after the, the man with the dirty sweater. I can never <laughs> remember their names. It's pretty interesting. Have you seen my father? No. And then she sees something underneath the towel, and there's his father rotten. And they're like, oh, my God! Better go up to the house and calm down. So it's like, yeah. that in other films, that would, like, prompt like some a fight scene or something like that but it's more like i found him in the bay go away okay yeah. well everyone everyone in this every one of the adult characters in this film pretty much except for the entomologist and his uh and his wife are yeah. scumbags like they're all yeah. plotting to try to get this inheritance so yeah. they're all plotting against each other they're all trying to work different angles so then mm -hmm. they all realize that they're isolated in this bay and they have plenty of time to kill each other off if they have to do it every so time yeah so they're all they're all basically trying to work angles and fuck around and like you know get things done all I see was uh, the the octopus this the octopi and actually it's octopuses it's not octopi I found that out uh, was crawling all over the guy and I'm just thinking like HP Lovecraft and at the same time the face hunger from alien yeah yeah. on his face and I'm like yeah that's I mean that's a very good that's a very good plot and he I mean half the time he's like you know where's my father I'm so worried oh there he is he's dead oh good I get money yeah uh, it's pretty interesting though she goes in to wash her face and she sees all the teenagers and stuff in the tub in and the she's tub, like oh my yeah. god and she freaks out and then stabs the guy right in the dick well right I don't there. think I don't think it was a dick I think once he crawls Looked out like, from the doorway Oh yeah, well, first of it looked like right in the crotch. It, it, it does look like he stabbed the dick, yeah. But <laughs> do you sort of give it like a mild recommendation, Paul? Or uh... I would definitely give it a mild recommendation. I mean, just definitely get the uh, a little maybe a different cut, brighter version, longer version. Give it a go too to see well, if there's anything. Uh, that I I'll throw the Put Locker link to you because that's the version I watched and it was okay. Just to see if there's anything that I missed in it. 
overall, it's pretty interesting. Um, after one of the actually the best kills that I like is because of the like violence that's involved with it is the spear mm-hmm. where it actually go where it goes into Mr. Dirty Sweater and and he's just trying to swing that 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 bail hatch at at the guy. It just he just can't do it. And I actually like that one quite a bit too. Uh, probably let's go back to a Fulci film with this one. Weirdest damn ending ever. Doesn't make sense at all. No, yeah, the ending is just weird bullshit. Like the kids, like that just comes out of nowhere and makes no fucking sense at all. It's you know what like... would make it even worse if it, Bobby was in the fucking thing? <laughs> Bobby, Bob, 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 <laughs> Bob, Bob. Bitch, goddamn. I'm back. Yeah, that that, that felt very Fulci, didn't it? Yeah, that yes, ending did. Man. Yeah. But, but other, uh, other than that, I'm just gonna say, you know, it was pretty interesting. I had a lot of scenes of the of the bay. The visual aspects is nice. Uh, kind of reminds me of Tenebrae because we just watched it with all the the visual shots of water, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a lot of films play on this. It's definitely one of those ones that you have to watch, especially if you're a big fan of a lot of the slasher genres and stuff like that. The the who done it murder mystery aspect is definitely different for the styles of films that I usually watch. You don't usually get a lot of that. So it's definitely something that is a culmination or amalgamation of different aspects into one big film. I'd give it a 7 out of 10 because of the, maybe because of the film that I watched and maybe because I just haven't watched it enough. But that's still definitely a good recommendation. Go check it out. Right on. Uh, Daniel, your final thoughts on this one? Uh, again, I really liked it. I probably would want to watch it again just to uh, try to understand the plot a little bit better. Um, but I didn't really mind not, not yeah. getting it. Kills were fun. It was, I don't know, I, I, I think I respond to the genre a little bit better than, than Paul does, um, just because I kind of accept it. It's like, oh, it's a bunch of unlikable people killing each other. I, I you know, yeah. I don't find that at all. I mean, once you, once, if you kind of get to that early, you know, you're like, you're not supposed to like these people. Like, they're, they're just going to kill each other. It's great. I don't know. It, it's, it's probably better in theory than it is in practice, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. um, just because the plot is pretty incomprehensible. I mean, it is sort of one of those things where if you had, like, a, a really good writer go through and, like, do a really clever everybody killing each other, like, intricate, um, like, like almost noises-off level of a super uh, fast-paced uh, version and then uh, threw a bunch of kills in, I think it could be a super fun movie. I mean, of course, I'm describing Clue, but, I mean, like, yeah. an actual, like, straight up. You could do it horror without... You could do it without the comedy necessarily. I think there is a, a sweet spot there finding it, um, but I think this is still pretty effective at what it does. And uh, again, I, I enjoyed it. So thumbs up. If you if you like the murder mystery comedy stuff too, definitely check out if Murdered by Death if you haven't seen it. I'm pretty sure I've seen that. It's been a while though. Peter Sellers, Peter Falk. Yeah, I have seen that. Time. Yes, good, good stuff. Um, so just a quick couple of trivia things before we finish off here. Uh, apparently Christopher Lee went into this, one of the screenings of this one and was completely revolted by it. He, he was a fan of Bava's earlier work and he was interested in seeing this one, but didn't quite jive with him. <laughs> so as I already said, uh, Friday the 13th copied two notable murder scenes from this. And you can kind of, you can kind of say that pretty much all the sort of dead teenagers in the woods films sort of copied from this. Although interestingly enough, when we're, the place they filmed this one, there actually wasn't that many trees. They actually had to like have people holding branches in camera for the oh, characters awesome. to walk by in the film. So, that, so there you go. Uh, Dario Argento loved this film so much he had a friend who was a projectionist steal him a print of this film during its first run in Italy, and the theater ended up having to show Hatchet for the Honeymoon, which was another Bavia film, instead to replace the stolen print for the remainder <laughs> of the film's run. And Argeno possesses this print of the film to this day, apparently. 
so there you that's go. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, there's a Region 1 DVD by Image Entertainment uh, under the title Twitch of the Death Nerve. That's uncut. You can also find uh, a Scimitar uh, release that is under Bay of Blood that is uncut. Neat little note here. The, apparently the budget was so low on this one, I couldn't find a, a budget or a box office for this one, but uh, the budget was so low that Bava was his own cinematographer on it, and a lot of the tracking shots were done on a simple child's pull wagon. This had the camera set up on it and going along. And there you go. Uh, I, I think this one works pretty well. Uh, I think it's worth seeing, especially if you're interested in proto-slashers. If you want to see where all these movies from the 80s that you really love sort of came from, you have to look at like films like this and The Town of Dreaded Sun- Sundown and Black Christmas and stuff like that. You really get sort of the DNA of those sort of films. And I think this film probably doesn't deserve a lot of the negative criticism it got. I mean, yeah, the plot's incomprehensible, but, I mean, fuck it. I mean, the set pieces and the overall sort of... It moves really quickly. Like, there's no real super dead spots in it. So you can just go on from murder to murder to murder. There's very minimal annoying character bullshit that you have to sift through. And it's an enjoyable, real good watch. So I enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, Daniel, where can we find you on the internet? Tell us about your Doctor Who podcast. I do a Doctor Who podcast with my wife. Uh, we're currently going through season nine, or series nine, excuse me, uh, two episodes at a time, and doing classic Who in between. We just put up an episode on Carnival of Monsters, a uh, third Doctor serial. We had a, uh, we actually had a uh, woman on the show who's doing another podcast called City of the Dead, mm-hmm. which uh, is going through every single Amicus film production. Oh, nice! Uh, I gotta so, check that out. Uh, you should. I'll send you a link to that. You could. You should awesome. check it out. Don't go listen to my podcast. Go listen to Holly's podcast. <laughs> um, Holly's actually doing that with uh, James Murphy, who was on my podcast like two or three weeks ago. So cool. um, that's pretty awesome. And so if you want to listen to me talk about Doctor Who Classic and New Series, you should go to oispaceman.lipson.com. Oispaceman.lipson.com. Awesome. Uh, Paul, where can we find you on the interwebs? You can find me at PA Brew News on YouTube, one word, Funeral Dust 666 on YouTube, Beer on one and Metal on the other, and then Facebook PA Brew News. Awesome, awesome. And uh, next week, uh, I'm not quite sure what we're going to be doing next. Uh, I, I wanted to change up things a little bit. We had to plan to do two uh, Bruno Mattei films, but kind of thinking we might change it up for the next two episodes where we do two directors each episode, one film each, I think, because I kind of want to I kind of want to cover a couple more uh, Italian film directors in our initial run of the series. So, And also, I can't, for the fucking life of me, find a copy of Rats, Nights of Terror, or whatever the fuck for Bruno, Bruno Mattei. So <laughs> that was another impetus to change things up a little bit. So Okay. Uh, I think we're going to go out on, uh, unless anyone has any different options, I think we're going to go out on the cliched Black Sabbath from Black Sabbath who took their name from Mario Bava's Black Sabbath when they saw so many people going into the theater to see the movie. They're like, hey, that name sells tickets, so let's call our band Black Sabbath instead of It's a lot Earth. better than Earth. Earth. Damn hippies. <laughs> yeah. So I'll go with that, and of course I'll probably also, between uh, the movies, I'll, I'll probably stick in the, the main overarching theme for uh, Bay of Blood, which to me kind of sounds like uh, the desert level from Super Mario Brothers 2, if anyone's familiar with that one. <laughs> it's got sort of got that same vibe. <laughs> I need to go back and watch it again. That's, that sounds awesome, yeah. <laughs> Alright, thank you very much everyone for listening. Send your comments and questions. Uh, you'll get all the information at the end here where you can go and do that. 
At I think at some point we're going to be on iTunes, so it'll be much a lot easier for a lot of you more uh, technically uh, uh, adept people who are not uh, weird luddites like me who uh, skew technology and run away from things I don't understand. And yeah, uh, we're going to go out. Thank you, Daniel, and thank you, Paul, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye bye. Thanks a lot. Cool. See ya.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>